The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. You would turn with me in your New Testaments to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 will be there this morning for our study. It's wonderful to be with you on this Lord's Day and to worship God together in spirit and in truth. It's a joy to have some visitors in our midst. That's always the case um, for Zoe and I personally. It's uh, certainly sweeter this morning as it's our family. I, I love my family by flesh. I love my family by marriage. And I love my family by faith here at Elm Street. And it's a sweet thing when all are together and we can and participate in things of like faith and worship our one Father, and that is a wonderful thing um, this morning. I've been encouraged by all of the participation in worship and been edified and uplifted, and I certainly hope that that continues in our sermon uh, this morning. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is where we'll be this morning. We started a couple of Sundays ago when we um, were meeting only at one time in the morning. Um, a study from Hebrews chapter 11 had an introductory lesson, and then we got into the characters of Hebrews chapter 11, those who we might consider as members of the hall of faith, of the roll call of faith, exemplars of faith recorded for our learning and example to follow. And I bit off a little more than I could chew last Sunday and handle in one time, and so we're going to finish the study that it began last Sunday with the faith of Abel, Enoch, and Noah, and we will finish with Noah this morning. We indicated that Hebrews chapter 11 is obviously filled with men and women of faith, and that these are not here for us as a historical record. Not every detail about their life is given, very few details really. Some of them, there's few details offered in the Old Testament, some a lot more details, but none of them are given um, every detail in this chapter of faith. But we illustrated and demonstrated the reason why the Hebrew writer wrote this chapter, and it was because he follows chapter 10 where he calls his readers to live by faith when he quoted from Habakkuk 2 in verses 3 through 4. We're familiar with the epistle that the brethren were falling away, and there are various times in this epistle where apostasy is warned about and they are encouraged to turn away from their unbelief and turn back to God in faith. They were going through difficult trials, very difficult trials that we'll probably never experience to the degree that they're experiencing. Their own countrymen, their own kinsmen were persecuting them because they had turned from the Jewish faith, the system that became to be obsolete, as we see in chapter 8 and demonstrated throughout this entire epistle. And they were turning away from that back to the old law, because of the persecution of their own countrymen, they needed encouragement and they needed warning to turn away from their unbelief back to God, to, to be strengthened like these men and women of faith. And that's the key point of Hebrews chapter 11. It's meant to be practical. It's meant to step on the toes of those to whom it was written. And certainly us, are we living as these men and women did, these exemplars of old? Are we measuring up, if you will? And certainly there's always room to grow, and he's calling them to grow and to go on in believing God. He mentioned some fundamental points about faith to begin with in 
verses 1 and 2 and 3, and also we mentioned verse 6, even though that follows Enoch's faith. The faith is the substance of things hoped for, so it, it undergirds, that word literally means to stand under, and so it undergirds our hope. We don't have what we hope for, but it's it's substantive because we believe we trust in God's word. That's enough for us. His word is as good as if we've already been given the thing we hope for. And it is the evidence of things not seen. And so it's not that faith proves anything, but faith is conviction in the evidence we do see to the extent that that's enough. We don't need anything else. And we believe in God's word. Faith is how men and women lived in the past and were given testimony of being pleasing to God, verse 2 tells us, which is what we read of in chapter 11. Verse 3 demonstrates a part of what we learned in verse 1, that the reason why we believe that or we understand that the world was made by God is by faith. We weren't there, but we trust Him. And based on that fundamental principle of believing that God is and that He created us, we then seek to follow Him and please Him. Verse 6 indicated that faith is not simply conviction in God's existence, but it's doing something about it. It's following God. It's, it's diligently seeking Him, and He rewards those who do so. Now, in chapter 10, he had mentioned that their faith would have great reward if they persisted in it. They needed to not cast away their confidence, but the just shall live by faith. But those who draw back, God has no pleasure in them. So... In this time of persecution, don't get down in the dumps. Don't hang your head low, as he mentioned in chapter 12. Instead, strengthen the hands which hang down in the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. And that follows the consideration of men and women of faith and the fact that they lived and trusted in God, did what he said, were consistent in such. They did not waver and that was in the midst of an imperfect world full of sin and struggles and trials and temptations and that's what faith is a lot of people who claim to be christians in the world would have you to believe that faith is like a fairy tale where you you have a love affair with jesus and he takes care of you from then on and and you'll never have to worry about anything whatsoever that all of the problems in your life will go away But that's not it at all. We are promised that we can not worry, but it's not because our problems are completely non-existent since we believe in God, but because we're given those things that we don't see and we trust in them. And we trust in God enough to get through the dark times of our lives and the struggles and temptations of this earthly life. We want to get to heaven. And so since we trust God's promise of heaven... We're going to do whatever it is he tells us to do, refrain from whatever it is that he forbids, and we're going to to live by faith, live by his word. Now, how does that look is the question. That's what Hebrews 11 really is about. By faith, these men and women did something. They didn't do it randomly, arbitrarily, but because they were following God. The first man that is mentioned is Abel, and we mentioned that faith shows in Abel's actions that it's more than conviction, but it's directed conduct. His sacrifice was more excellent than his brother Cain's. And we noted that because faith comes from hearing God's word. So the sacrifice that he gave 
that was pleasing to God had to have conformed to direct and specific instruction of God. We don't know what that is, but we do know that if you're living by faith, according to the example of Abel, you're following God's instructions. And corresponding to that, we noted with Abel's faith that our righteousness is either confirmed or denied by God's word. It says in Hebrews 11 in verse 4 that he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. In Genesis 4, it simply says that God respected his offering, but he did not respect Cain's. Again, we're not told how he communicated that. We know that he directly spoke to them, at least in in some way, because God confronted Cain after he murdered Abel, and we know that that's how it happened during this patriarchal dispensation. But regardless, it's communicated through God's word. He gave instruction. Abel followed that instruction. Cain evidently erred in some way. And in that way, simply, we can know whether we're righteous or not. Compare our lives to God's word. Examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. We also noted with Abel that faith can anger the unfaithful. And we see the death mentioned of Abel. And it's not mentioned that that death was a murder, but that's something that is granted that the audience knows. Abel was murdered by his brother. And 1 John 3 tells us why. Because Abel's works were righteous, but those of his brother were evil. And and darkness always hates the light. And Jesus is a prime example of that. But that shouldn't trouble us. It shouldn't shake our faith. And that's exactly what's going on with the Hebrew audience. They They left that obsolete system to serve in the fulfillment of its whole purpose. And they were being persecuted for it. Faith angers the unfaithful. And we also noted with Abel that faith leaves a legacy. It says that through it, his sacrifice, his offerings, his gift, he being dead still speaks. I don't think that's a reference to his blood crying out from the ground, but a reference to the fact that his example of following God's word by faith stands in eternity and God's infallible and eternal word for men to read and live by. He left a legacy. He may not have had a progeny. He, he didn't have a family that he left. That would go on through Seth by, by Adam and Eve. But Abel nonetheless left a legacy with the actions that he took. And certainly we are charged with leaving a legacy with following God by faith. Then we look to Enoch. We know very little about Enoch. He is mentioned briefly in Genesis 5 in regard to a genealogy, not a necessarily a historical account. We see him mentioned a few times in the New Testament. But here in Hebrews 11, we note some things about him, that he was taken away prematurely. He didn't have to die. And, and he did that, or he was given that blessing because he pleased God. That was the testimony he had he had received scripture gives about him sub, uh, much the same way with Abel. He followed God's word. But we can learn a few things about faith from Enoch. We learned that Enoch didn't always walk with God in that genealogical record of Genesis 5. He lived 365 years when God took him. He was three, 365 years old. But he didn't start walking with God according to that record until he had Methuselah at age 65. So faith requires a great change. He was walking according to the course of this world, or at the very least wasn't walking according to faith, but he changed. He took up his responsibility as a creation of God. And we noted that doing God's will is what matters. You can you can start at the very tail end of your life and start serving God, and you only got two weeks in before you perish. And I think that we're all familiar with, if not personally, 
to some extension stories of that occurring where an individual is on their deathbed and then they obey the gospel and they die shortly after that. There's a parable about that that Jesus speaks. It doesn't matter how long. What matters is you started when you had time. And so we can be warned about the fact that we don't have time. We also can be encouraged by the fact that if we still draw breath, that's enough. We can start obeying God and God will reward anyone who eventually starts and then persist in their faith. We learn from Enoch that he is a prophet of God. Jude mentioned that in his epistle very briefly, that he prophesied about the judgment that would come on the world of the ungodly. So while very little detail is mentioned in how he walked by faith, we know that part of it was him preaching a message of righteousness and judgment to an ungodly world. He didn't keep his mouth shut for 300 years. But after he made that change when he was 65 years old, for 300 years, he walked by faith and his faith was outspoken and God rewarded him for that. In fact, the Hebrews are called to an outspoken faith. You might notice there in chapter 10, he says, therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward in verse 35. And that Greek word translated into confidence literally means outspokenness. And while certainly it could be used figuratively to mean confidence, it was certainly indicative of the call to them speaking their faith, not forsaking the assembly, being outspoken in their conduct in Christ. Our faith needs to be heard. God's word needs to be spread. And lastly, with Enoch, before we get to Noah, and this kind of gives us a segue into it as well, as we learn that Enoch was taken without death. He was not found. And that may indicate that people were looking for him. He just disappeared. They didn't know what happened. And maybe it wasn't revealed until Genesis was written. But what we do know is that he did not die. God took him. And that was a blessed thing. We learned of the genealogical record of the end of chapter 4 and throughout chapter 5 not only emphasizes that because of the actions taken by Adam and Eve and eating of the forbidden fruit that men now die, sin brought forth not just spiritual death into the world, but being excommunicated from the garden brought physical death, that men died and death is an enemy that we all have to face. It also manifested how sin spreads. It's, it's a cancer that entered the world and everyone was affected by it. And you have this division with the seventh son from Adam in Seth, which was Enoch, and the seventh son from Adam in Cain, which was Lamech, and we see what their actions consisted of, and we see what those of their family's actions consisted of. Some were materialistic, and and Lamech was a polygamist, and he murdered someone, and then you have Enoch walked with God, and you've got this divide in the human history of men who were living for the world and men who were living for God. And a point we made by Uh, Enoch being taken, not experiencing death, was that if you look at that record, Enoch was taken at about midpoint in his life. So there's about a half of his life left to live if he were to live in about the average way that those men were living. And he didn't have to see the decline in the world's morality and spirituality. And while it may be the case that we don't know why men or women of our family or those of our loved ones close to us die when they do, we can't explain why those things happen. We also understand the blessedness of those who die in the Lord. 
And maybe they're being spared from some struggles, some, some things that would be hard for them to handle as, as men and women who live by faith or at least see some trials and tribulations of that nature. Or, or maybe just God will spare the faithful in some other way. We feel deliverance from time to time and we feel relief and we know God works providentially. And what we understand is that God takes care of his people at the very least. He certainly did with Enoch. We mentioned that that would be a segue into Noah because Noah is Enoch's great-grandson. And Noah follows that pattern of the divide of the human history where men were following after worldly and physical lust and, and pleasures. And then there were those who began to walk with God when Seth was born at the end of chapter 4. Noah is the most prominent one for us in that record where the historical account picks up in Genesis chapter 6 that we are very familiar with. It's dear to our hearts, and we know the story well. In Hebrews 11 and verse 7, the Hebrew writer says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Again, not all the details are mentioned, but we know them intimately, and we can learn a lot from just what is mentioned in verse 7 about the faith of Noah. He did something, of course, and he did something as a reaction to God's instruction, God's word. But not only that, he did something as a reaction to God's word in the midst of a time where things had reached the worst point. We saw the decline in chapter 5, how, how men begin to multiply, and really cha- at the end of chapter 4, chapter 5, getting to Noah. And they started to live for the world, and they lived in ungodliness. And, and those giants, really, that are mentioned in, in chapter 6 for another study, perhaps, but I think we can fairly well reason by a study of the Scripture and the usage of that language, not that they were, you know, skyscraper height individuals, but that they were fierce and vicious men who who walked after really their father Lamech, who used the sword much like Cain did when he he took the life of his own brother. And they were violent. And that's a specific thing that God mentions in Genesis 6 when he's going to destroy the world. They're they're evil in their thoughts and their hearts continually, always before me. They're they're full of violence and it's time that things stop and he's going to cleanse the world with, of course, flood waters. And it says during that time you have Noah, and by faith he did something. He trusted in God. He was warned, and he acted on that warning. But it was in the midst of a world that was going the complete opposite direction, but also in a period of history that hadn't seen much of a change over those years. Men were just either walking with God, or the majority of them obviously came to be those who were living for earthly pleasures and worldly, immoral, sinful things. And things were just persisting. But Noah did not conform to the world. Romans chapter 12 tells us not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's an age-old principle as it pertains to faith. It happened all the way back in the beginning. God's intention was for His people, those people who loved Him and trusted in Him, that they would not live like the rest of the world lived, that they would follow Him. 
and that therefore they wouldn't trust in things as they just were, but they would trust in what God told them about future events, about things to come. And this starts back before any command of God to a specific thing like the flood. We got to establish our faith. If we're going to endure things like James 2 indicates, we've got to allow our faith to be tested and trust in God and, and lean upon Him, ask Him for wisdom to get through these things. And faith starts to build and it starts to grow. And it's hard for us to imagine ourselves being able to stand in Noah's shoes and for that expanse of time, do what he did by faith when none had ever seen anything like God's promise of the flood. Could we have done that? Well, as we mentioned before, these men and women of faith in Hebrews 11 are not to be put on a pedestal where we look at them as if it's impossible to do the things they did. If we were living there in the days of Genesis 6, we would be expected to, to be living like the people of God lived then. Noah may have been one of the only ones, but that would have been our call to do what Noah did. I don't know what would have happened if they listened to his message, if they would have started helping him build the ark or, or whatever would have happened. It's quite obvious that they were given chances, but that their wickedness was so far beyond repair in their own hardness of hearts that they didn't repent, they didn't change, but but they had that chance and they were expected to really do what Noah did, to trust in God. We would have been expected to do the same. But those great feats of faith, they start way before. They, they start with the little things and building up to the big things. I think that I've heard several times from, from others making this excellent point, so I won't take it as, as some novel point myself, but you know, a lot of times people act as if they could do the one big thing at the end of their life. They could be a martyr for Christ. It would work. They could get through that. And they do that with the context of the rest of their life not being conformed to God's word. But if we're not able to do the little things, how do we think we could do the big things? And that's seen in Noah's life. He did the big things because he did the little things first. He always walked with God. He had followed God all the way up to this point. Notice the the divide there in Genesis 6 in verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord simply means he found favor in God's eyes. How do you find favor? We looked at Abel and Enoch that God testified of their righteousness, bore witness to their righteous deeds. And we know that through his word, Noah found favor because he walked with God by faith. He did what God told him to do. Not just at this point in Genesis 6, but all the way before that. Genesis 6 is preceded by the final verse of Genesis 5, which said that when Noah had his sons, he's 500 years old, lived a long life. We don't know when he began to walk by faith like we did with Enoch. But we do know that it was an established faith by this point. God didn't arbitrarily choose Noah here. He had his eye on Noah during all of this. He saw the decline. He saw how bad men were getting and how far away from God they were wandering. But Noah was consistent. It says in verse 9, this is the genealogy of Noah. So you have the genealogy from Cain in chapter 4, then from Seth in chapter 5, and Noah's elaborated upon here. This is his genealogy. 
Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, and he begot these three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So Noah's different. He was righteous before God, justified and perfect, not in the sense of flawless. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, including Noah, including Abraham that we'll mention, including even Enoch, who was taken before seeing death at the age just about half as much as the rest of the men who were living. But Noah was perfect in the sense of complete. We see Abraham's faith was made perfect in James chapter 2. And while obviously this Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the concept is still there. It speaks of completeness, well-roundedness of faith. It wasn't inconsistent. Noah didn't just pick and choose what he wanted to do, but it was a, a whole faith, a complete faith. Unlike anyone that was in his own generation and that faith that withstands test is well established prior to the test. That's how Noah was able to do what he did. He stood out from the rest of the world. In verse 13, God gives the declaration, The end of all flesh has come before me, and the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then in verse 17, Behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life, Everything that is on the earth shall die. What kind of a person would be able to take a warning about something that what we'll learn is so far in the future? Noah didn't necessarily know how long it would take, but not only just unheard of because you haven't seen it yet, it's, it's too far beyond in the future, too long to wait for but up to this point, nothing like this description of God had happened. A universal flood, and, and people deny it today. They, they claim that there's no way it ever happened. And maybe naturally it's not possible, but this was a supernatural event where God flooded the entire globe with water. And the reason why Noah did not, you know, step back and, and have this great look of surprise on him and, and fail to follow through with God's word he didn't do that because he had been trusting in God's word up to this point. And no doubt God had continually given him confirmation that your trust is not misplaced. And now here's this great warning of something that is unheard of. And, and Noah acts by faith. He does something by faith in regard to God's word. The apostle Peter mentioned this in 2 Peter 3. Because as we know, there is a great promise of a universal destruction and punishment of sin, a judgment day. And even back in the first century, there were those who were of a spiritual direction. They were people who were religious, who were Christians and had fallen away. Those Gnostic heretics of Peter's um, addressing them. And, and they knew of the promise. They knew of the prophecy of the destruction of the world, of the judgment day. And they thought that since it hasn't happened yet, we've never seen anything that bears any semblance to that description given by the apostles and prophets. It's just not going to happen. The status quo is what I trust in is basically what happened. And Peter calls the brethren on that. He says in verse 3 that no scoffers will come in the last days. They'll walk according to their own lust. They'll be saying, where's the promise of his coming? And this is the reason for their doubt. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Don't let anyone fool you into believing that the world is going to be destroyed by our own actions. 
I don't care about the political approach to that. The scripture doesn't tell us that. The scripture says the world will be destroyed, but not by any of man's doing. And we shouldn't let the world shake our faith because they say nothing like this has ever happened. That's what they were doing. They're trusting in the status quo. I'm going to live my life according to my fleshly lust. I'm going to do what I want to do because you know what? God's making this promise, but I haven't seen any changes yet. All this stuff people are looking at and pointing out. I don't think there's any connection there and all of that kind of stuff and, and the misrepresentation and application of, of the, the, the unveiled uh, prophecy and such of, of revelation and all of that is a, a side point. You know, I, I just don't believe in anything regardless, even if those things are, are, are misapplied anyway, but things are continuing as they've always continued. So why should I change? Why doesn't God give us some warnings? He tells us that there are no warnings except the New Testament. You've got to live by faith. And this is what they forget themselves in verse 5. As they trust in the status quo, they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Don't you remember the flood? That inspired account, it's been confirmed to you. The, the apostles and the prophets allude to it. It's written by inspiration. That actually happened, and, and you're forgetting about that. It says that they willfully forget about that because if if they if they submit to the fact that that is a historical and divinely inspired record, then there is no surprise that something like this in the future is going to happen. They turn a blind eye. They want to trust in what's going on here. But the heavens, verse 7, and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, you, you trace back to Noah's faith. We've never seen a universal fire that quenches all that we know and melts all the elements, we'd cease to exist, but it will happen. Noah had never seen a universal flood. It's quite possible, and some some scholars would submit that there had never been rain up to this point. Maybe that's a logical conclusion. We're not told, but maybe he hadn't even seen rain up to this point. He certainly hadn't seen so much rain in the opening up of, of the earth's waters where it was a universal flood, but it didn't matter. Because God's word is true and he trusted in it to the extent that in a world that was not believing anything they heard about a universal flood, God continually trusted in Noah and and gave him the charge to preach that message and Noah trusted in God and did preach it. Second Peter 2 and verse 5 says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. He was preaching the flood, saying it was going to come to judge sin He brought the flood in on the world of the ungodly. And he did this for an incredible amount of time. In Genesis 6 and verse 3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Basically what God is saying is, I'll give you 120 years to get right with me. That's it. You've had all this time, I'll give you 120 years. And he gave that command to Noah. Noah started preaching. He started building for 120 years. Did he know how long it would take? I don't know, but he trusted in God. How much more should we? And when we go on and, and sin and we, we turn to the world and we start living for the, the pleasures of this life, we're manifesting that we do not have the type of faith Noah had and the promise of a universal judgment and destruction that he has given to us. We've got to trust in that. And not believe the world and Satan's lures that tell us these things are worth it. 
because they're temporary. The world is passing away in the lust of it, First John chapter 2 says. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Faith acts on God's word, not on the present state of affairs, not on what everyone else believes, not on what things have done in the past and continue to do, but what does God say? That's how faith acts. But also we see that faith, by faith, Noah, being divinely warned, moved with godly fear and prepared an ark. And what we read about that in Genesis is very telling. We read in Genesis 6 and verse 22, after the command to build the ark, that Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. And he did that by godly fear. It was energized by the understanding that God has the power, that He is the Creator, that as sometimes parents say, He brought us into this world and He can take us out. Noah understood that because he knew God's power and he trusted in God's ability and in God's Word. And that was manifested not in any explanation or, or exhibition of some kind of emotion and dramatic display but of simply doing every single thing God said. The world likes to romanticize faith. Well, this is what faith means. It means having a love affair with Jesus. You've got to fall in love with Him and and have that warm feeling inside of you. That's the Spirit moving you and and, and all of these kinds of things. He doesn't care about the the you shall do's and you shall not do's. He just cares that you have that, that emotional, raw connection. That's not what happened here. Noah showed his faith by building the ark to the very detail because he feared God. He loved God, but he feared God as well. The Hebrews were warned about resisting God's word, and that's why he mentions some things in Hebrews 11 like this. Abel did what God said. Enoch walked with God, did what God said. Noah did everything that God said. You need to continue to do everything God said. It's not enough that you bought into the new system, which is a fulfillment of the old system. If you fall away from it, it will do you no good. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He mentions on multiple occasions throughout the book of Hebrews in several different ways. You've got to live consistently. Don't resist God's word. Hebrews twelve twenty five. he says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? He says... Since we are receiving a kingdom, verse 28, which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. Why would I ever do the exact same thing that God's word tells me to do to the letter, not leaving anything out, not adding anything to, but I'm going to be, I'm going to be strict with how I live my life by faith, by God's word. Well, because I fear the consequences. I know when God says something, He didn't just say it just to speak. You know, sometimes uh, growing up and, and probably even now, uh, my dad would say, you know, you're just like to hear yourself talk. Shut your mouth. You're just running your mouth wanting to hear yourself talk. God doesn't do that. When He says something, He's saying it because He means it and He requires us to adhere to it. He's a consuming fire. In chapter 2, He says, if if the things spoken through angels prove steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He's speaking of the word of God. Don't neglect it by disobedience because you will be destroyed if that is the case. Noah did everything that God said. And that's not just a general statement about, you know, do, do all that God says. You, you, you live to please God and, and you, know, you figure out what that means 
yourself. God specifically tells us. We studied and we've been studying in the teen class from from James and we went through a review because it's been so long this morning and and we emphasize the fact that it's a practical book because Christianity is practical. It's not just conviction and some facts, but it's actually changing your life to adhere to the direction of God. And, and those directions are specific and he doesn't expect us to just follow some of it. He expects us to follow all of it. And you see that in the details of the ark's construction and instructions. Chapter 6 of Genesis, verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is the, the dimensions, the length shall be 300 cubits, 50 cubits the width and the height 30 cubits. Make a window for the ark and shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door on the ark on its side and make it with lower and second and, and third decks. Why would God give the details like that? God could have said, Noah, just start building. I'll take care of the rest. God has the power to, to use through his providence or even, you know, this miraculous intervention to make sure that even though Noah was given no instruction, he just starts throwing things together that it comes out in this immaculate piece of construction, an ark that can withstand a, an incredible flood like this. Well, God could just do that. He could have just made the ark out of thin air for him right there. But faith requires testing. And we are required to prove our faith to God. And that's what the instructions are about. He gives us an explanation in many ways of why he tells us to do what he tells us to do. But sometimes we just don't have that much detail. We just have the revelation of what his desire is. And, and we can't question that. We've got to do what he says. Second Timothy 1.13, Paul tells Timothy to hold fast the pattern of sound words, which you have heard from me and faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And you know, as we look about faith in Hebrews 11, faith of individuals, we've got to look obviously to ourselves as individuals and see whether we're living like that. A lot of times we quote verses like 2 Timothy 1.13 to talk about the doctrine the church teaches and upholds, the, the work of the church, the worship of the church, and, and what we do as a church. And, and that's certainly true and that's certainly good. But there's a pattern of sound words for Jeremiah and what I do in my life when I leave this place when we gather together. How I interact with those in the world and, and the things I do from day to day, the type of, of, of job that I may hold, if, whether it's, it's something that's sinful or not, to the type of entertainment that I consume. There's a pattern that we're to live by. Noah did all that God said to do, and we're to do all that God says for us to do. Faith understands that the details God gives are not matters to take or leave. We do what God says. You know, we looked at Abel and Enoch, and we saw the effects that their faith had on their destiny, if you will. And we see that with Noah as well, because he became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. But we're given another dynamic of faith with Noah. It says that he prepared an ark for the saving of his household. Faith affects families for the better. Do you want a successful home? Do, do you want your children to grow up and, and, you know, be successful citizens and contribute to society and, and be salt in the midst of an unsalty world? But, but more than that, to, to be contributors to a local work, to, to be the Christians that God would call us to be. Do we want to have that kind of success in the lives of of our children? Do we want a successful marriage? Do we want a successful relationship? What, what do we want out of our life? Well, the key to it all is living by faith. God instituted the family. God created all that we see and know. 
And the way that it functions in the most effective way is by faith. That is, hearing God's word and doing God's word. It said that Noah lived by faith. He was righteous, but it directly affected his family. We're not told a lot about his family. We're told in 1 Peter 3.20 that eight souls were saved through that water. You had Noah, you had his wife, you had his three sons and their wives. That's eight souls. And while we're not given a lot of detail, and we're told in Genesis 6 that Noah is the one that found grace in the eyes of the Lord, it stands to reason that if this godly man was being a godly husband and a godly parent, that his children would have some kind of conviction. It says that through which he saved his household, certainly their physical bodies, but God wasn't going to spare Noah. He's, he's the one man that lives by faith. And, and even though his family is ungodly, I'll spare them as well. Because all that does is sets up the new world for failure. It affected his families, not just in the saving of their, their physical lives, but the saving of their souls. They, they saw their father and husband and father-in-law live by faith. They learned from that. As Abel left a legacy for us to follow, Noah left a legacy in his life for his family to follow. And it affected them greatly. We can't be effective members of our family with whatever role that we fill without faith. You can't do it by by philosophy and psychology. You can't do it by worldly wisdom. You can't do it by raising a good Republican or a good Democrat, whatever you believe in. You you do it by raising and you do it by living by faith, a, a faithful child of God. That's how Noah did it, and it was effective. And it's a pattern that we can follow. Faith or the lack of faith will drastically affect the spiritual direction of a family. I recall the time, I, you know, I like basketball and, you know, you, you have the TNT, uh, you know, um, commentators at the halftime with Charles Barkley and Shaquille O'Neal and such. And they say a lot of funny things. I recall one time Charles Barkley was talking about um, some kid that did some foolish thing. And, and he said, if you see a fool, follow him home. His parents are probably fools as well. And that's, that's really how things work. That was God's design. The home is the fabric of society. The home is the fabric of the church. If you have parents that don't live by faith, the children aren't going to live by faith. If they do, it's not going to be because they're following their father or mother, but because they've gained that conviction themselves. But, but the mother and father have that role. The wife and husband have that role to, to establish that faith in a home. This is what Joshua did in Joshua 24 and verse 15. He says, If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served who were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I want us to notice, as we see in the New Testament, the father, the husband is the head, the authority in the home. Joshua did not say, me and my family, we're going to huddle up. And y'all huddle up too, and y'all figure out what you're going to do. He just said it. We're going to serve the Lord. If you're under my roof, you're going to serve the Lord, is what Joshua was saying. And that's, that's what God calls husbands and fathers to be. And it may not be a part of what society believes in, but faith doesn't act on the status quo. Faith acts on God's word. What does God call us 
to be. If we're going to have godly families and faithful families like Noah, we've got to live by faith in a way that does not compromise in any area. What we need to also understand more briefly with this last point is that faith will naturally condemn the unfaithful. We kind of saw that with Abel. He died because his works were righteous, but his brothers were evil and faith angers the unfaithful at times. But faith will also naturally condemn the unfaithful. It says that he prepared an ark by which he condemned the world. And it's not saying that Noah walked around telling people that he was better than they were, that that they were just terrible, scum-of-the-earth human beings, but his call was a call of repentance, that, that you can change your life to, to live by faith in God, and you had better do it before it's too late. But in his preaching righteousness, his living righteousness, and his building and constructing of that ark, showing his conviction in the promised flood, he was condemning everyone who came into contact with him. Maybe not explicitly out of his own mouth, but maybe just by his own actions. In Matthew chapter 5, we're familiar that Jesus tells us we're the salt of the earth and we're that light of the world. And we're to let that light shine before man that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Peter adds a little more to that and it has a negative connotation as well. In chapter 2 of 1 Peter He says, you're a sojourner and pilgrim, so abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. There's still some positive to it. Glorify God in the day of visitation when Christ visits them with the gospel and they have that opportunity to become a child of God and live in that way as well. But they're defaming you as evildoers. It's not all roses, sunshine, and rainbows. Our faith is going to rub most people the wrong way because they're going to feel their own guilt. First Peter 3 in verse 16 adds that. That you've got to have a good conscience when you're sanctifying the Lord God in your heart and giving that defense. That when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. And what we've got to understand as people of faith is that that is necessary. We don't want the world who is ungodly to feel good in their ungodliness. We shouldn't feel guilty that when we're doing what is right, they despise us and feel their own guilt. We're not trying to make people comfortable in their sins. We're trying to be salt of the earth and bring others to Christ. We're trying to shine that light, and we know that the darkness is going to hate the light, but some will see it. And they'll feel that shame and what that shame will lead to in a godliness will be their salvation. As Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10, godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. We may be the catalyst of such godly sorrow. They may not know that they should be ashamed until they see the difference between the way they're living and the way a child of God is living. And that is by God's design. Don't let them guilt you into feeling like you shouldn't be doing what you're doing, that you shouldn't be bringing those coals of fire on their head. That is God's design to preach the gospel, to bring the lost to him, but also to live our lives so that people can see the difference. They can be ashamed. And in that godly sorrow, they'll repent and turn to him before it's too late. That's what Noah did. And that's what we're called to do by faith as well. We'll continue this study, Lord willing, 
uh, next Sunday with, with Abraham, another familiar character. But there's so many similarities to these men and women of faith, but obviously so many things that are given to us in detail, uh, different facets of faith that we're enriched by uh, according to the revelation of the Holy Spirit. If you're here this morning, I'm not obeyed the gospel. We want to give you the invitation to do that, to be baptized in water for the remission of your sins so that you can rise up walking in newness of life, beginning your life of faith. If you have done that and you need any encouragement or have any spiritual need we can assist you with, the invitation is extended to you as well. Come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.